Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. In this episode, I interviewed Professor Tony Warren. Professor works at the University of Salford. He's also a non-executive director. He used to be an associate pro vice chancellor. He's got a background in mental health. And I honestly like, I can't believe I've just interviewed him because he's somebody I've followed for a really long time. I came across him because he is part of and kind of a leader of the Early Risers Club on Twitter. So every morning I get up and I think he was saying between like five and eight, he's around loads of people around just cheering and championing cheering each other on, saying good morning, asking how we're doing, wishing each other a good day. And it's just a lovely community. And he'd always respond with the nicest comment. And then like you do, you think, oh, this person's really nice. And then you kind of check out their profile and it's like, oh, he works in health. Like that's cool. He talks about a lot about going to meetings. I'm like, "What what do you do? And then found out he had this huge blog. He's been blogging for around about 11, 12 years every Sunday. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people tune in every Sunday for his blog. He's never missed a week. And I just thought I would love to know more about you. And he kindly came on. We talked about the role of a non-executive director. What does it mean? We talked about accountability And to Tony, being a non-executive director is about accountability, assurance, and encouraging that organization to be ambitious. He talked about being self-confident and challenging people without condemning. And I think that's really, really, really important. For those of us in a leadership position, you want to support, you want to provide constructive criticism, you need to provide challenge, but in a way that doesn't condemn people. We talked about diversity and mentorship and Tony walks us through kind of what it takes to get a PhD. And he said to me, if I had a pound for everyone that said, I'd love to have a PhD, be a millionaire. So what does it take to get a PhD? So he walks us through that. I love this episode. I just loved it. I'll stop talking. Enjoy. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Tara. And thank you for inviting me to be here this afternoon. My pleasure. So just to give a kind of background to our audience, I've got a Twitter account 
And I don't know how, for months now, I wake up quite early and I started seeing this hashtag, which was the Early Risers Club. And I, it sounds silly because even though it's virtual, I was a bit like, should I start using the hashtag? Should I not? What do I post? And I just thought, are you overthinking this? <laughs> like, just, <laughs> if you want to use it, just use it. And I started using it. And every morning I get people saying like, morning, hope you're well. People always respond. And it's such a nice community. Did you start that? Uh, it was started originally by Judith Stass. And I think it was probably around 2015 so we're sort of been around for a bit now and to be absolutely honest Tara it was a early morning kind of touch base with a couple of people so there was Judith there was myself there was another lady who's now left Twitter so I'm not going to sort of mention her name but we just used to say good morning have you got a busy day so weather like where you are and that kind of thing And over the last five or six years, it's just grown absolutely mushroomed. And now I think people appreciate it because it's an opportunity for people to say, I wish you well on your day. I know you're having a difficult time or good luck on that new job or let's try and be as positive as we can today. So it's it's really about sharing. It's about being there for other people. It's a a kind of hashtag where people can come in and stay around for a few weeks, disappear. I keep a careful eye on the timeline of people that are there on a regular basis. And if I don't see them there for a week, 10 days, then I kind of just DM them and say, reaching out, just making sure you're okay, anything I can do. And, you know, it's important, I think, to try and be there for others. And They've certainly been there for for me when I've needed them as well over the years. So it's free to join. Use the hashtag. We're there from five o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock in the morning. So anyone can come and post anything you want. And I think it goes to show. So I started following you because of that hashtag. And then over the months, it's like, oh, what does Tony do? Like, he's interested in this. He doesn't like mental health. He's saying that he's got Zoom meetings. And then once I kind of found out more about what you did, I invited you onto the podcast. So could you give our listeners an introduction to kind of who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. Well, my professional background is in mental health, mental health nursing. And I spent the best part of about 20 years being a practitioner and then a manager of mental health services here in the northwest of England, period of my life that I really enjoyed. And for all kinds of reasons, which we probably haven't got time for here, I then went into the university system and um, started lecturing around mental health, around leadership and health policy. I was really interested in, in health policy. And I was mentored by a couple of really good people who encouraged me to develop my academic career. And it was really a second career. And I went from being a lecturer, actually being a part-time lecturer, to then becoming a professor, dean of school. And it was the largest school in the university, doing all kinds of healthcare, professional education and training, except medicine. That was the only one we didn't do. And then uh, pro-vice-chancellor before I retired in 2018. And although I have been retired and I should just be walking on the beach every single day for as long as I want, 
I've also been a non-executive director in two acute trusts, one for seven years and one right at the beginning of the pandemic and since the pandemic has been running. And you've also got a huge blog. Oh, my blog. Well, yes. (laughs) Yes, I was challenged to start writing a blog by a couple of colleagues when I was in, in the university. And they were responsible, really, for bringing the school right up to date with social media. They were really passionate about introducing students to Twitter. And they suggested to me it would be really interesting for me to write a a blog on the basis it would be a kind of one-off thing. But it became addictive. So I'd been doing it every Sunday morning now since this is the 12th year that I've been doing it. And I have not missed a single Sunday. I got married in October last year, and just the way that the the marriage was on Saturday, my new wife wasn't impressed when I said I was going to get up at five o'clock on the Sunday and to post my blog. So she made me write it and put it on one of these things that kind of posts it automatically uh, for you at five o'clock. But apart from that, it's quite genuine. I get up quarter past four, something like that, and get the post together, and then I post it around five o'clock. When we first spoke, I said, well, what would happen if you didn't post it? And And I told you the sky would fall on my head. (laughs) It would be chicken licking all over again. I don't know. Of course, nothing would happen if if I didn't post it. But I do think people would be very curious, like, where is the blog? At one time, I think I must have had flu or something like that. And I was a little bit late posting it. You know, I didn't go out until about quarter to six. And my brother texting me saying are you all right where where's the block (laughs) (laughs) so I think a few people might kind of question it but it's interesting because it it is written for lots of different reasons primarily because I like to keep my mind active so I read stuff all the way through the week I consume stories and gradually as the week goes on I begin to get a bit of an idea and I usually go for a long walk on the beach and try and bring it together, come home and type out some notes. And I try and make it a blog that's topical for the day, so picking up on the nuances of what's happening across the world, what's happening in healthcare, social care. I try to make it humorous, but I'm not a natural kind of comedian, to be honest. And I try and weave a golden thread all the way through it. So I start off with something that maybe connects the reader all the way through, but, you know, it enables them to look at different things. So it has a good following. I almost spend more time responding to the comments saying thank you than I do writing the actual blog. So it's obviously hitting a mark somewhere. You have thousands of views on your blog. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I yeah. think for people listening, I don't know if, how much you appreciate it, but you're very consistent. So even with the early uh, Risers Club, I would think if you didn't respond, I'd think, okay, where is, where's Tony? Very consistent. And it's like you're in it for the long game. So lots of people start a blog, you know, like for, I think lots of people start it for themselves and there is, um, there is businesses op- business opportunities. And I know that um, we've discussed that. It's attracted yeah, yeah. lots of people to you. But the fact that you have been posting every Sunday for years, like so many people would have given up by now. But I think <laughs> it probably goes back to your reason why you do it. And you've built up a loyal following. You know, you are part of people's Sunday routine. It now. appears that way, Tara. Yes, I get that quite often. You know, my first cup of coffee and I'm going to read your blog. Thank you very much. 
And it's it's kind of spooky. It really it really is. It's kind of spooky. But I appreciate. I tell you, Tara, I appreciate everybody who reads it and then takes the trouble just to make a comment or say thank you. It really is heartwarming from my point of view. And I don't write it for that reason, but it is really good when people take the time to say thank you. So you mentioned you are a non-executive director. Can you explain to our audience that may not be, we've all heard of the title, but what do you actually do? Well, you certainly work harder than the two or three days a month that you (laughs) should be doing. That's for certain. The kind of strict reason for being a non-executive is that you're holding the executive director's of a hospital or a community trust or a mental health trust, you're holding them to account. So they all have portfolios of responsibility and and through various mechanisms, you make sure that they are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what you're doing all the time is seeking assurance, but seeking assurance. So it needs to be some evidence that um, what they're saying they're doing, they're actually doing, and it's getting the results that you want. And the way that you do that is um, I've been very privileged to chair in both the trusts that I have a NED role in, the quality and safety and the clinical effectiveness sub-board committees. So you have an annual agenda of work that you want people to go through and you, you seek evidence and that usually comes in the form of reports and you're able to challenge. And my, my philosophy is kind of built around three A's. One is accountability. So you have to let people know that they really are accountable for their area of responsibility. There's no getting away from it. And that's not a threat. That's saying, we're in this together, but you're accountable for it. If something needs a bit of help, a bit of support, then your responsibility is to let us know and then we can provide that help and that support. Um, I want them to be able to demonstrate assurance So reassurance is good, and, you know, that's the kind of uh, added bonus. But let's see some evidence of what you said you've done and the kind of consequences of that action or intervention. And then I want people to be ambitious. So I don't just want them to sort of come along and say, okay, everything's good. We've had a CQC report, and we're now sort of good in all areas. I want them to be ambitious because there's always something you can improve upon, You don't know what the world's going to throw at you. Nobody knew 12 months ago that the pandemic would have such an unsettling impact on all our lives. So accountability, assurance and ambition are the kind of underpinning ways of thinking about how I do my job as a non-exec director. Did you just apply or was it like a friend of a friend? (laughs) No, it was... um, one of these headhunting companies that came along and said that there was this non-executive director position and it was in an acute trust. And first of all, I said, well, you know, my background's mental health and I don't really know anything about acute medicine. And they said, well, you know, think about it. So I did, went through the interview process, assessment centre, and much to my surprise, I got selected. And I actually think growing up in a kind of mental health world rather than in acute medicine has been good for me because it's meant I can ask those naive questions. You know, why are we doing this? What do we hope to achieve once we've sort of gone down this route? 
are you sure about this decision? So a lot of naivety on my part, but that's one way, I think, of providing challenge without sort of um, making it a personal um, assault on somebody's integrity or, you know, what they've been doing. So um, it was by headhunting. And then the second one was um, I'd moved to Blackpool about two years ago and um, I just saw in, I think it was online, an advertisement for a non-exec director. And I thought, this is great because I could walk to this hospital from where I live. <laughs> so I went there and the governing body, who are the ultimate people who decide who's going to be a non-exec director, were, had a split decision. And it was kind of interesting. They went for somebody else. The chair rang me up and he said, got some good news and got some bad news. I said, let's hear the bad news first, thinking, I haven't got this. He said, you haven't got the job. We've given it to somebody else, the other candidate. He said, but if you don't mind waiting four weeks, one of the other non-execs is retiring and we'd like you to take their place. And he had spoken to the governing body and they were all happy for that. So I joined. Just as um, the Prime Minister said, okay, we're going down into lockdown. So, (laughs) you know, actually physically walking around the hospital and getting to know people and having cups of coffee and chats has been really difficult. Most of it has had to be done virtually, which has been a challenge. So with your first role, I asked you how you got it. And you said, you know, like somehow I, you know, like I was lucky enough to get it, but you were headhunted. You've got a really accomplished career. So what advice would you give to somebody that hasn't been a pro vice chancellor of a university or got an extensive clinical or academic background? How do you get into those positions or do you Um, need to have that behind you? No, I don't think you need to have that behind you. We have on both boards people who are both accomplished in the sense that you're describing, um, but also accomplished in other ways. So who don't necessarily have had a career that's taken them through that, but maybe have done uh, a lot of work independent sector or the voluntary sector and have an interest. What people are looking for, I think, is integrity. They're looking for an ability that comes from a kind of self-confidence to challenge without condemning. So to be able to ask questions in a way that doesn't threaten people but gives people an opportunity to respond. You don't even need to have any experience in, in healthcare, is my belief, because there's plenty of people around you once you become a NED who provide you. You know, when I started at the Acute Trust, the acronyms that people use whew, over my head, and I was constantly saying, what does that mean? You know, and of course, everybody uses that and the jargon that's associated with it. And actually just asking the question makes them pause about how they're using language and why they choose to uh, explain the world in that way. So I think you need to also be aware of what's going on in your local community. The two trusts that I belong to have very different demographics. There are similarities around deprivation and inequalities, but they are very different demographics. So you need to be aware of that. And I think it does help if you are involved in some way locally in some shape or form. But you certainly don't have to be someone who's been a chief executive or a high-flying kind of role position to be a non-exec director, not at all. Okay. And you mentioned accountability. How does the non-executive board hold the organisation accountable? 
And in regards to, and I suppose what I mean, what's the consequence if they cannot demonstrate the evidence? Well, that's a really good question, Tara. That is an absolutely brilliant question. I think too often there's been a really cosy relationship between the non-execs and the executive directors. And you can see why that happens. You know, I've been a non-exec seven years, which is one year more than you're supposed to do. And they have those time limits in place for very good reasons, because it is easy over time just to become very cosy. And once you start to do that, then things can slip. So I'm not saying that you need to be poles apart. You you need to develop a relationship that allows for challenge, but also allows, you know, for a more social interaction as well. And if people don't perform, then it's not the role of the non-executives to do something about that, but it is the role of the non-executive to, if you like, expose that. And you do that through a mixture of gathering different evidence. But, you know, essentially, if things aren't working, then that becomes an issue, not just for you as a non-exec, but for the whole board. And there's usually mechanisms for resolving those kind of issues. Yet ultimately, the chief executive will have a role, as will the chair have a role. The other group that's in there, of course, is the governors. So periodically, as a non-executive director, you go and stand in front of the Council of Governors and anybody else who wants to be there, and they say, what have you been doing over the last month, three months? Show us the agenda of work. Show us where the improvements are happening or not happening. So the governors hold us to account and we hold the executives to account. Ultimately, in Blackpool, for example, They've gone through a real, in the last three, four years, complete replacement of the executive board and half the non-executives. And that was driven by very, very poor performance. Okay. So there is an ultimate kind of sanction. Yeah. I think that's quite helpful to know and for you to articulate, because I think we see sometimes on the news where, you know, you get those organisations that you know, protect that culture and everybody, even if things aren't right, they don't say anything or not strongly enough. And then all of a sudden the house of cards comes, you know, piling down. Yeah. And I think you're right to note that, that in my lifetime, I think my career span, you could see people who would lose their job on a Friday and Monday, they'd be back doing something else and having received a great big payoff as a kind of consequence. And it was just immoral. That doesn't happen anymore. It's impossible for people to both benefit in that way and return, but it's still very easy to be very cosy. You have to be very careful. So I also wanted to talk to you about diversity. And we had a conversation where, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about um, Black Lives Matter um, when kind of at the peak last year. when that happened and I think you meant you said maybe a bit naive yeah and talk to me a little bit more about that yes I think that I was naive around the kind of unconscious bias that people have and the way that that comes out in many aspects of um, from my point of view public life but in society in general and I think I decided to write a blog about my misgivings, my sense of bewilderment as to what the issues were, and also 
a kind of sense of dismay that I actually didn't know enough about mm-hmm. what was going on in terms of indiscrimination, yes, oppression, yes. I'm a kind of teenager from the 70s, so, you know, the kind of black Angela Davis and, you know, the kind of liberators out there in the States and, and so on were, I read their books and I kind of identified that in the same way that I might have identified with, you know, Mousy Tung's Little Red Book. So it was part of my growing up and yet I didn't absorb any of that reasoning and that meaning. So 40 years later, being presented with such an emotional kind of turbulent kind of pushback across not just the US, but across many, many nations, I found quite bewildering. And and to be honest, Tara, I didn't understand and I didn't understand why I was so ignorant. And so I wrote the blog and I got quite a lot of reaction from it. And one was a plea to come and talk to a group of, I think there were midwives in Wales, which was a bit bizarre. But what I didn't realise at the time, I said yes, and I did it. But what was revealing to me was that I wasn't alone. There was an awful lot of people who at one level could recognize what the issues were, but at another level, either didn't know how to do anything about it, how to articulate a conversation that, you know, looked at some of the issues in kind of an appropriate way, and, you know, what to do about that in the future. I can remember around about that time having a receiving an edict from the NHS England saying all trust boards have to go through an unconscious bias training program, which we did. What a waste of time. Really? Um, yeah, Why? I think, I think so. I don't know whether it was the uh, person who delivered the workshop for us, but the one thing it did was to raise awareness of where unconscious bias uh, lurks in, in society and gave lots of examples the kind of consequences of that but fell short of really saying what we could be doing what we should be trying to work towards that kind of would remove that unconscious bias that um, is there in people's minds and thinking and that's why I think it was not a particularly good use of time you know raising the awareness is, is important of course it is But a workshop should be facilitated to enable the participants, I think, to move from a place of ignorance to a place of uh, understanding and then ambition to do something different in the future. And I think that last two bits were missing. So on reflection, and obviously a lot of time has passed since that workshop, and from with your non-executive director hat on, what changes can be made? I think... It kind of connects very much to the question you were asking about how do you become a non-executive director? I think really headhunters need to take a very different view of the kind of person that they're after and recognise the kind of contribution that people can bring to the table that's not something like a long history, uh, you know, in in, uh, some illustrious career. But more who the person is and their sense of self what it is that they can bring to you know an organization in terms of its governance and and leadership i think you know right at the very beginning of that process then there needs to be a change about how you think about selection i'm a great believer in mentors 
And one of the most privileged things I had when I was dean of the school was to mentor people's career. And for me, that was one of the most rewarding things that I could do was to use my experience, my influence to open doors for people. So not a cronyism kind of or this kind of chummery approach, but, you know, saying, Tara, you seem to be really interested in X, Y and Z. Why don't you go and talk to this person about how you might move that idea forward? Or, you know, will it take a few quid to get you going? Because I can make sure we can give you a few quid. Or let me take something off of your shoulders so you have a little bit of time to think about how to develop this. So the rewards for me were manifest in many ways. But, you know, I would, I began to go to meetings where people who had come in at a very junior level in the organization had kind of moved up and were now sitting on the opposite side of the table telling me what we could do as a school, <laughs> you know, and, you know, hugely rewarding. And, you know, of course, in I was dean of a school of um, healthcare professions. In the main, most of the people I worked with were female. And in the main, uh, there was a great deal of reluctance, I think, to enable some of those people to kind of move forward. So we had uh, a diktat from the university that said every lecturer had to have a PhD. Yeah, really good. You know, a PhD <laughs> is not for everyone. It's a real hard road to, mm -hmm. to travel on. So that kind of reluctance then became manifest in saying, well, I'm going to go and work somewhere else. And so you were in danger of losing really good skills. So it was about saying, okay, PhD is not for you, but why don't you start writing? Let me help you start writing publications because we can get you a doctorate through, you know, a publication route. You don't have to study for three years doing a bit of research. We can do it another way. So in enabling people to believe in themselves, to sort of be motivated, I think, is the other thing that we should be striving to do. And I was fortunate that in some ways I had a captive audience of colleagues who worked in the school. But you can do it in any environment with any group of people. And just encouraging people to take the next step is would fundamentally make a change. It's about enabling people to believe in themselves. And I do that with the Early Risers Club. I, I get quite a lot of DMs with people who, you know, say, hey, I'm struggling. Can I have a conversation with you? You know, and you might spend half an hour on the phone talking to people about how they might move themselves forward. And some of them I don't hear from again. Others, they come back and say, do you know what? I was saying I really wanted to get that job. I've now got a job like that and I'm really happy and I'm moving forward again. So we can all do it. Yeah, and I would say in regards to the mentorship, we do have to, for some people, they have to overcome the unconscious bias because if somebody reaches out to you that may seem so different from you, and I think sometimes there is a little bit of it like the imposter syndrome from the mentor because they may be thinking, I've yeah. got nothing to offer you. Because otherwise, what you tend, you may get is just people mentoring people that look like them and it's just the same. Oh, absolutely. So it's, I think both parties, the mentor, T needs to look for somebody different to them and the yeah. mentor needs to look from somebody different from them and we've got our own mentorship scheme and everybody absolutely loves it and the mentor gets just as much from the mentee 
is it a symbiotic relationship yes, it's not absolutely. just one person saying I'm you know like more yeah. accomplished this is how I did it it yeah. is every all the mentors come to me and say I've realized this about myself or it's given them so much confidence yeah do you know that is so similar to a really good PhD student supervisor relationship because you know they do come to you initially because either you've got a reputation in the particular field that they want or they just need to get a supervisor. But when the relationship really starts to work, the supervisor learns as much as the student does through their doctorate studies, doctoral studies. And they may both learn different things. That's true. But I think that's a sign of a good relationship. I've never had a PhD student fail. So I'm, and I've done about 22 of them all the way through from start to finish. So I can speak with authority. So actually coming on to that, so you said when we first spoke, if you had like a pound for everyone that said to you, I'd love to get a PhD, you would like you'd be I'd, in Hawaii. I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> so could Absolutely. you help our listeners? What does it take to get a PhD? And where do you start? And also, where does it take you? Well, personally, I think a PhD unlocks a lot of doors and whether we like it or not I liken it to you know when I I did an MBA years and years ago now and everybody who wanted to be someone and go somewhere had to do an MBA and now it's kind of value has kind of decreased a little bit I think and the PhD it doesn't matter whether you want to be in academia or in any other kind of walk of life I think it's a gold standard symbol of a person's ability to think analytically and differently and to be able to use that knowledge in a way that's very helpful. How do you start the journey? You have to have an idea of something that you want to explore. And usually students come and they have this big idea that's way out here somewhere, and you usually spend the first year just getting them to come down, come down, come down to something that's quite manageable. But unless you have that idea, you're never going to get off the starting blocks. Some people say that it should be something you're really passionate about, I think that's often a good idea, but sometimes when you be, it's because the motivation is something you're really passionate about, it can blinky you in terms of actually seeing the world in a, in a different kind of way. So the first thing I think is to have that idea. Second is to find a way of doing the PhD that suits you and your way of living your life. So yes, you can become a full-time student, you could become a part-time student, you can do it by publication. You can do a prof doc, which is, you know, where your organization will support you to do a, a doctoral level studies to examine an organizational issue or, or problem. So there are many ways you can do it. It's not cheap. So a lot of people will do it on a part-time basis because they can manage that from a financial point of view. You then have to find a place that you want to do it. So there are certain universities and departments, schools within universities that specialize in certain areas. So do a bit of due diligence and research and find where you want. And then the next critical thing is to identify a potential supervisor. Even if you don't do that, the university will be glad to get your money and they will give you a supervisor. I'm not sure that that's the best way of doing it. You know, I've had some people who have applied and I've met with them and I've said, I don't think I'm the right person for you. 
I'm happy to work with you, but personally, I think you would be better off with Amy down the road because they're more likely to be able to help you grow and uh, achieve where you want to be. So, you know, that, that supervisor-student relationship, I think, is really critical. If you have a family, you've got to talk to them mm, about the yeah. commitment because, by heck, you have to put some time in. And some things will have to go by the wayside. You know, you, you might have to be doing something on a Saturday instead of doing something with the kids and, you know, your partner. Um, and you're going to be doing that for two or, well, three years. And then I think it's really good to find a network of other people doing PhDs because it's such a lonely road at times to be walking along. And you will inevitably meet a point in your PhD journey where you're saying, is this really worth it? I could be doing something else. And what you need is a network of people to say, Tara, come on, you've come so far. You're nearly there. And that's particularly important when people write up, you know, a number of my students who say, I can't submit, I can't submit because I just read something that I need to put in chapter three. And you're saying, for goodness sake, put it in, (laughs) finish it, because you've got plenty of things you can do once you've got your doctorate and you can follow up and do future research. So it should be a fun thing. It's not always going to be fun. It is hard work. I think it was, um, I was really fortunate. I had a a really eccentric uh, supervisor who cajoled me and shoved me along and kept me thinking. And um, if I tell you the first time I met him, he had emailed me and said, write me 3,000 words on leadership, send it to me, and then we will meet. And I met him, and he took this uh, 3,000 word paper, and he ripped it in half, threw it in the bin, and he said, you've got no idea what you're talking about. And I felt so deflated and thought, what am I coming to? And he said, right, let's have a conversation about leadership. And he just kind of took me to places that I hadn't even thought about. You know, mine was a very pedestrian view of what we might mean by leaders and leadership. And in an hour, he just took me to so many different places. And I loved him. By the time I finished my PhD, I would have done anything for him. You know, he was (laughs) totally eccentric. What was your final thesis on? Oh, well, it was looking at relationships that GP fund holders had with healthcare providers of services. So my PhD supervisor uh, was a medical sociologist with a great deal of knowledge about anthropology. So we spent a year exploring anthropology and the whole of my thesis was around the family of family practitioners. So it kind of drew on these notions of um, relationships that they had within the family. So the GP with the practice nurses, receptionists and anybody else who might be visiting but also the relationships they had with other medics. So, you know, if they were commissioning services from an acute provider, often it would be somebody that they went to medical school with. So some of those relationships were quite close. And because the government at the time had put in a kind of contracting, a kind of quasi-market, I was interested to see whether some of those relationships just kind of worked their way through the market or whether people used the market to further and strengthen those relationships and that's often what happened I think and here's an interesting thing I got about two-thirds of my way through uh, data collection and doing my PhD and we had a change of government and Tony Blair came in and he said 
don't want the Kavezai market. Get rid of GP fund holders. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> you know, two years gathering all this data. And, but anyway, you know, see, this is where you have a good supervisor. So the supervisor steered me. And, you know, in the end, it was fine. It was, it was okay. We got a thesis out of it. And where has it taken you? Like, what does it, having that PhD at the beginning of your name, or the end of your name, if you use it, like, I know it's about your, per- I think my understanding is you do a PhD because it's personal to you, might not be, necess- unless you're in a university which requires a PhD, yeah. you are doing it because you, for the love of learning, the love of knowing to go yeah. that one stage deeper. But for anybody thinking, I want to do a PhD to enhance my career that may not be your average academic and uh, sorry not average because you're not average if you've got a PhD but like you're typical in an academic institution I know what you mean yeah if you are a healthcare professional healthcare leader I speak to lots of people that would like a PhD how does that enhance their career or is it not about it's just not about that I think it is a bit about that I think you're absolutely spot on right when you say you do it for your own personal development and um, I, I know when when I had been awarded the PhD it felt like a huge achievement to me. And, you know, back to that imposter system, uh, syndrome, you know, I'm thinking, well, they're going to take it off of me. Because, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, but it was a huge achievement. Does it help you? Yes, I think it does. The title of doctor certainly opens lots of doors and is an interesting way to develop conversations and relationships with, with people. So I've never really used the title doctor Interestingly, a lot of my colleagues in the university, as soon as they got their PhDs, first thing they did was to come and knock on my door and say, I want a sign that says Dr. Tara. And, you know, it was like dead important for them to have that symbol on their door. I've not really got caught up in that. But for me, it enabled me to develop a network of different people um, who I think may not have known anything about me, but would have respected the title. And that respect might have been enough to get me invited to, you know, a meeting or a conversation. And then it's up to you, of course, to kind of build and develop that. A cachet, I think it still has a lot of value. And, you know, it's difficult to become a professor without having a PhD. (laughs) And for me, becoming a professor was just like, whoa, wonderful. It was like winning the pools. And um, Tony, thank you so much. I, and I, I think I said this to you and it sounds like cringy, but there are people that you follow online and then you get to meet them and you're like a little bit starstruck because I have <laughs> followed you for so long. And when you said you'd come on the podcast, I was just, I was so chuffed. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, if, thank if, you, Tara. It's been if, great. If people want to connect with you, where should they find you? They can find me on Twitter. It's uh, Tony. It's the hashtag. Um, yeah, if they go on the blog, there's details, I think. So again, just put Tony Warren blog into your Google search and yep. it will throw you up and all my contact details for ease are there. And I'm very happy if people want to DM or whatever. I'm happy to respond. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.